Well, greetings, uh, Dr. Spanger. Uh, another, we're going to set up another podcast uh, to talk uh, about um, trying to negotiate the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Um, we are uh, in 2020, so we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, racial unrest. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, political unrest. Uh, criminal justice reform is in the air. Uh, and we're in the middle of a presidential campaign, which is always a exciting time in the United States. Um, and in some cases, I think that the, the pandemic has uh, exacerbated a lot of things, yeah. uh, which we've talked about before. But uh, it's a classic time to really process this, this idea of our podcast, Unlikely Pilgrims. Uh, how do we negotiate the kingdom of man and the kingdom of the city of man and the kingdom of God in the middle of election season? Mm. When the city of man uh, has people asking for our allegiance. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of Christians uh, in America today that have either uh, lined up with the, uh, the options in the city of man and wholeheartedly bought in. Uh, and there's others who are probably feeling, what am I supposed to do with this? And to kind of kick this off, there was a, a tweet from uh, Barnabas Piper, which is John Piper's son. And uh, I'll use this as our kind of launch off part. It says, Christian, if you feel politically homeless, you're probably right where God wants you. Uh, this world is not our home. We serve a greater ruler and we're to represent his kingdom here. And it looks nothing, not a bit, like our present political power structures and parties. Second tweet comes right after that. Christian, because you can only do 244 characters. <laughs> Christian, if you feel at ease in either American political party, you're in a bad place. You likely have placed the values of your party over power of man and made structures over the words and values, economy, and reality of Christ's kingdom that you are called to represent. Uh, in some cases, Barnabas Piper's uh, tweets there can almost sound Anabaptist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right? Um, and so, thoughts, Dr. Spanger, as an intellectual historian? Well, listen, Mr. Dr. Dr. Draper, I, um, I want to be careful with that. I'm a historian that studies ideas. Some people mistake that to think I'm actually intellectual. I don't want to cast any false false impressions you about You don't that. have to be an intellectual. You just say what the <laughs> intellectual said. I just got to know how to read them and pretend I understand them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's a, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I'd like the fact that you said Anabaptist, and I want to make sure that our, our listeners that are listening understand that there is um, a stream of political thought uh, going back to the Reformation. And some say there were some examples of this going back to the Middle Ages too, but it was the Anabaptists specifically who, who created this perspective that God's kingdom is not involved in politics. And so if we're in the church, then that's where our loyalties remain. So a lot of Anabaptists, Mennonites, Amish won't vote or engage in politics. And that's been sort of an ongoing um, perspective, even among evangelicals. I know that Roger brought this up when he wrote the Benedict Option, that there's a possibility that Christians ought to do something like that, bail out. And I think what you, what you said there was a really important way to say it, and that is that the, the world's vying for our allegiance. Because I think this is where, to me, what, when you read uh, Piper's statements there, that that's what's being said. And maybe that's a distinction we need to help make. And that is that, well, politics political parties, whoever, they offer us all sorts of opportunities to live in this world, to serve, to um, create society. The question is, how much do we give them? How, how much of our loyalty do we give them? So use the word allegiance. And I, I, I want to, if we can, I want to keep that word around for this conversation because yeah. 
I think that's helpful for us to distinguish it. I don't think what I don't think what we'd be saying, or at least as we're talking about it, is saying the Anabaptist view where you don't see the usefulness of law passing and economic theory and taxes and, and social justice or whatever you want, how you want to phrase it. The question is whether these things deserve your loyalty and your allegiance. And I think that's probably, unless I'm wrong, Mark, and you can tell me otherwise, I think that's probably what people are feeling is the call from both Trump on the one hand or now Biden on the other is not just two theories about how we ought to go forward, but they're almost like holistical calls to loyalty. Either you're on my side and you're for the benefit of humanity or you're a danger to this country. And I don't know if that's what you're feeling. No, I think that's fair. I think, I think part of this is um, we've always had political divide in our country, yeah. right? Uh, uh, as a historian, I love throwing out the 1800 election to people, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, talk about vitriol. No, it doesn't fit their imagination, I'm sure. It doesn't. And, and I mean, of course, this is where the Sally Hemings story comes out for Jefferson, yep. to try to brand him as, a, as a, a new moral person. But it's also the election where Baptists, uh, particularly New England, side with Jefferson not because they agree necessarily with all of his politics, but he's the only candidate who's going to uh, fight for their religious toleration. So not have to, they wouldn't have to pay the church tax. Right, right. Uh, you know, so um, in fact, there's a great story after he wins that a group of Baptist cheesemakers from Vermont roll a, you know, bring a huge cheese log to the White House to thank Jefferson for his work, uh, which, I guess for Vermont cheesemonger, that's a pretty big deal. Um, so, uh, but I think now what we're seeing is that we see two very distinct ideas of what America should be. Hmm. Um, people, uh, I've had students, uh, you know, ask me, are we in a new, we're in a civil war or are we going to have a civil war? Right? Like I said, well, you know, historians are bad prophets. So I, I, I don't want to predict that. But I said, if you could argue that maybe we are in a cold civil war, mm. uh, in the sense that you know the armies aren't lining up at Bull Run, uh, but you know there are people being killed on our streets, yeah. uh, similar to the late 1960s. Uh, proxy wars going on. There's a proc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the same way Vietnam and Korea and Afghanistan were proxy wars for the Cold War. Yeah. So. There, but there's definitely a sense of a call to allegiance and the, and the rhetoric has been turned up in such a way that it does feel like you're either on this side or that side. And I think what, what Barnabas Piper is getting at is what some Christians are feeling is I don't feel comfortable. Both of these uh, platforms make me rather uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh, I think American Christians might be used to voting for the lesser of the two evils. But I think there are some Christians who feel, well, both sides have, but now both platforms, as it were, have evil, anti Christian idea or ideas that are antithetical to Christianity yeah, yeah. that give me pause. Um, and I think a lot of conservative Christians, and, and, and particularly the circles we travel, I think a lot of people uh, can or have uh, swallowed hard and voted Republican because of the pro-life position, right? right? Yeah. The similar to the way the Baptists could vote Democrat in 1800. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Uh, Can I cover on that for a second, Dr. Please, Chris? please, do that. Question. And this is something just came up with a conversation recently with a friend of mine, is, is that, yeah, the, the fear is that, and I'm going to go back to, to, the, to Piper's thought and your thought too, that 
there's a fear. We could say if you take any one of these two political positions too far, they're calling for a loyalty we simply cannot give, right? We cannot give heart and soul to republicanism, capital R, democratism. I can't do it. Is, is there a danger, though, that we equivocate, in a sense, between these two? And I, and I, this is where we're struggling as some Christian friends, is to say we can fully admit that neither of these is the right way to go. And maybe it's the wrong term to use. Is one a worser of the two evils? And, and it's hard to say anymore because they're, they're, they're wrong on different levels. But I think for a lot of Christians, there's still the struggle that at least on the left side, some of the, some of the platforms they're taking are just inimical. You almost cannot find a way to take them on and and agree with the Democratic Party. Yes, I mean, there there seems to be some platforms within the Democratic Party that for some Christians, uh, it puts it puts the Republic and themselves on a collision course. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the that's the tension there. Right. And that's why I think, you know, some conservative Christians will uh, certainly uh, hold their eye, cover their eyes, and, and vote vote Republican. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there are people who are so concerned about the current occupant of the White House yeah. that they're fearful. Well, yeah, I might get a pro-life judge, but am I undermining the Republic in a different way? Going and so you hear all these these tensions that people are feeling. I think I think that Piper's uh statement is is he's tapped into something there is a there's a, a feeling of people he's kind of given it an anabaptist ring yeah yeah uh and and again it's 244 characters you can't nuance uh so it, it's difficult uh but i i think there there are some christians who uh particularly conservative christians who will are you know they they're they're they have bought in uh, the same way there are Christians on the Protestant left who have bought in on that side. Yeah. And, but I, I think we don't talk a lot about the people who struggle in the middle. Yeah. Well, let me let me raise, because this is something you just said, and this is part of our podcast in, in broad, because we've got to think about the different categories that this falls into. We can talk about moral and religious categories, where some people look in religious terms and go, you know what, religiously, God has made certain rules, and I can't get around them. So if one party is going to be for uh, the death penalty. That's beyond my religious, but some, this group's yeah. going to be for LGBT rights. I just can't go there. But there's another element to this, which I think is really important that we talk about. And it's the context of our own podcast. And that is the idea of the Republic, because this is, this is being lost. And I think you and I are both feeling this. It's being lost in the comment in the present dialogue that we're not contemplating that even if there, and I want to be cautious here, but if there's a solution that doesn't sound religiously in line with everything I believe, and that's serious, Still, there is a way to maintain a republic, yeah. a, a republic that's responsive, that is law-abiding. It's a rule of law. For example, let me let me let me. I do this with students all the time. I say, what if you could become the president tomorrow, and you were to say, I'm declaring martial law against abortion, and I'm taking full military power to stop it. Now, you'd say religiously, that's exactly the right thing to do. We've got babies dying. Uh, we want to bring justice in, into this situation. However, to do so, you have to upend the balance of power, the rule of law, and make yourself dictator to do it in the process. Mm -hmm. So where there's a religious outcome you like, there's a political process which you cannot adhere to because you violate the very character of a free republic where you hold people in power in check and there's elections and votes. So to your point that you mentioned there, do we have to think in this election, this coming election, not just in religious terms, but in terms of the republic? Yeah. 
in which case you're saying, and if I hear you right, that there's probably not one party here that's going to give us good support for the republic as it exists. I think I would say I, I would say that that's what I'm hearing from from concerned Christians. Okay. Uh, you know that that uh, if 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 uh, yeah that that there's a tension there that there are some things being done by both parties that they feel undermines the republic, yeah. uh, and so and it's probably easier for a conservative Christian to see that in the left. Uh, because yeah. you know the the they've been branded as socialists in the in the in the conversation, so that you know someone I saw someone uh, cleverly said I don't want America to become Amerizalia, you know like <laughs> Venezuela, you know, but, and uh, or Cuba America or something like that. Uh, so that's that's one side. Um, but you know, on the other hand, you you have people who say see a political campaign being held at the White House. And does that under, undermine the republic because this is the people's house and it's a sort of you don't do these sort of things and does that undermine the republic in a different way where you don't keep it and, and i get that i i i understand that uh i can see those tensions that and i think what we're what we should be aware of and i think we know this as historians republics are fragile yeah that's right uh, they're so fragile they can easily turn into tyranny or just fall apart at a blink of an eye. Yeah. And I think Americans have deep down have always known that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I think that that's a, that's a really important point. I hope the listeners hear because I think we live in a time when we are not aware of the fragility of a Republic. It just seems to be always working and we've got tech and we've got a communal culture, oddly enough, that does expect it's, leaders to be accountable and yeah. leaders who apparently are so sensitive to that fact that when they are even appear unaccountable, they get nervous, they walk away from jobs, they like, but that's, that cultural reality is not common in history. It's very, very rare. And the idea that that's going to persist, I think is an overconfidence. I, I think you're right in the sense that um, a free Republic and, and the, the founders and the, and the early generation of the young Republic say after the American um, revolution, were very aware of the fact that if the people become vicious, um, if they become selfish and greedy, if they become violent, a republic won't work. And yeah. so they fully admitted this to, um, you know, to break down uh, through its half-life into what all republics do. And, you know, you take a, a, an element and it goes to its half-life, it actually changes right into something different. All republics break it down into tyrannies. And I think they knew that yeah. because as the people become less predictable, less virtuous, then you need law to become heavier and stronger to get the people in line. And sooner or later, you can't trust the people you've got uh, a dictator or a king back again. And so I, I, I think this is something that the listeners and our culture ought to pay really close attention to. And I think I agree with you, Mark, we're not, it's not in our discourse at all, is that what, what's at stake in these elections, while there are religious concerns, what's at stake is the actual success of a free republic, yeah. where you actually have the rule of law as a written law, imitating the natural law, we can talk about that another time, and a people willing to control themselves, mm -hmm. not, not require the government to control them, that allows the free space of a republic to happen. But if you get rid of either of those two things, you have to rely on a tyranny. And there's also something, I think, unique in this election cycle. Um, it, it seems as if from about, uh, say, since the Second World War, uh, up until 
uh, the last couple elections, that the threat to America was always seen external. Right. It was an external threat, right? It was the Nazis. It was the Russians. Uh, it was it was Islamic terrorism. Um, now the the speeches are well. There's an economic threat of China. I mean, that was clearly that's been clearly stated in certain circles. But the 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 debates over who which which person to select is really about internal threats. Yeah. Who's going to protect us from the in, in, internal threats? Right. And I think that makes things a little scarier because it's Lincoln's, and I'm going to misquote him a little bit, but I'll, I'll paraphrase, you know, that if the Republic's going to fail and be destroyed, the nation is going to be destroyed, America's too large to be destroyed externally. It's going to have to be destroyed internally. Yeah. And, and so it, to, to kind of hear Lincoln ringing in our ears, and there's nobody that took the Republic more serious than, than Lincoln. And jeopardized it. What's that? At the same time, and jeopardized it at the same time, which is yeah, a yeah. wonderful enigma of Lincoln. Yeah, um, but so that's that's an interesting uh, phenomenon, right? Yeah, that yeah. that that you know that's that's the rhetoric coming out of both political conventions this year. Right, right. Uh, that these are we have internal threats. Yeah. Uh, that are undermining our country, and which person will address that? Um, the, I didn't hear a lot of external threat coming out of the Democratic convention. And, and to be fair, in, all, in, in full uh, disclosure, I'm one of those dorks who sits and listens to the entire thing. <laughs> so uh, I, haven't been to before, I haven't been to bed before one o'clock in the morning for two weeks now. So <laughs> I'll sleep well tonight. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it, it is interesting to hear that. You know, that's, so to get back to our point of the Republic, but... You know, I want to go back to our broader picture. How do we negotiate our allegiance in this sort of, you know, the, the kingdom of God is clear, right? We, we know how our citizenship works there. Uh, I think to get back to Piper's point, maybe where we're wrestling is how do I live as a citizen of the kingdom of God when the city of man is at each other's throats? Right. Uh, yeah. as, you're, as you're talking, I was, I was just thinking that to myself, like, this conversation is a very important conversation. Then I have to ask as a Christian, how do I negotiate? And this is what a lot of people are saying about Trump. And they said this in previous election, well, I can't in good conscience. So that, that's how they wrestle with it, right? It's a, it's a morally individualistic thing. It's nothing wrong with that necessarily to say, I'm a man of character, a woman of character. This person is not a person of character, therefore I can't cast a vote. That's one, I think that's a moral dimension or an individualistically moral dimension. Then there's the corporate dimension, which you hear other people saying, well, I'm going to vote this way because I'll get a conservative judge or on the liberal side, I'll get a liberal judge. Um, I may not like my candidate, but I'm going to, I'm going to vote in the aggregate for the whole nation. Um, I think that's another one. And then the other, another one could be, yeah, how do we vote for the success of a Republic? Because I'm quite frankly, terrified of people having power. And I know Nietzsche was pretty clear about the fact that that's the only issue that really matters is that someone has power. There's no truth. There's no right or wrong. There's powerful and weak. So you can use all the moral arguments you want, do it so that you can get in power. That's your whole point. Yeah. Um, as a Christian, I think we've got to navigate. I, I'll leave the Nietzschean one out because I, I, I think while we admit that there is power, we can't act in the hopes of getting power. And if there are some Christians out there that are really using politics to get power for right reasons or wrong reasons, we have to say you are in direct violation of what we understand. And there was actually a very uh, good article in the Gospel Coalition by, I think it was Trevin Wax, 
uh, about this idea of power. Yeah. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. And I think I would have to be Anabaptist just to say that's not the point of this. But I, but to the other, but if you look at the other calculations, and this is where I'm struggling, Mark, and I don't know that I have an answer for it, but I think every Christian needs to put those three things at least on the table and make sure you're navigating that wisely. Like it, you, you can't just look at one morally individualistic. You've got to look at the aggregate. You've got to look at this idea of the Republic and what's going to make it work. And then you've got to make a thoughtful choice. And I think where Christians get off, as we always do in every age, is we try to negotiate these things without looking at all the pieces on the table. Like if you're going to negotiate a peace treaty between two countries, you don't just look at oil reserves. You got to look at oil reserves and you got to look at trade. You got to look at military power and you've got to triangulate. And there was, you know, this from history, but there was a, a foreign policy um, um, model at one time that, that uh, Kissinger helped develop called the real politique, where you, you make the most real result possible. We'd like to get an ideal. At the end, the Christian can say, I'm pulling this lever. It's the best possible lever. It's an imitation of everything Jesus would have me do. And and I'm not sure in a fallen world if that's ever possible. And so I I probably, whatever I'm going to do in the fall, I'm going to be somewhat uncomfortable with that decision. Mm -hmm. Because I think if I have to negotiate or triangulate these three pieces, I'm not going to get them all. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's... And I think that's the that's the tension. And, and now to throw another layer of complexity on this. Oh, let's do that. Why don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not uh, enough here. So we we we're talking about this political discourse that are that we're trying to negotiate. But at the same time, the political discourse uh, is not the. I'm going to use medical language. It's not the disease. It's the mm-hmm. symptom. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a if there's a virus or a bacteria, uh, I, I guess I have those on my mind right now. I guess so. <laughs> What's happening in Western culture is that Western culture is changing, is moving and changing under our feet. Yeah, it's changing epistemologically. It's yeah. it's changing. Right. Uh, we we talk about the Constantinian synthesis as the sort of marriage of Christian Judeo Christian values with with Western culture. And on one side, you, you have people who see that and are threatened by that and are fearful. And on the other side, you have people who are very excited yeah. that we, we need, that we've been, we have been beholden to this uh, juggernaut of ideology for far too long, and it's time to tear it down and rebuild. Hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, and I'll go back to my... Uh, I, I, you know, obviously, I think what Barnabas Piper says is is valuable. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about it if we didn't. But it is only 244 characters. There's not a lot of room for nuance. And in this debate, unfortunately, I think a lot of our debates are happening in these short little contexts, which doesn't give you that ability to process big ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when you go back to the triangulation, I mean. Let's just take the Black Lives Matter. The reason it works, the reason you know Dr. King didn't use that, wouldn't have used that, but it works now because it, it, it's a hashtag, hmm. right? It's it's it started off as a hashtag. It it works today, and then of course there's a movement underneath of it, right? But just the hashtag itself hmm. is what's on the floor at the NBA, hmm. um, and so it, it has power. Those Hashtags now have power, um, and it's not, it's not negating it. It's just if you want to really know what Black Lives Matter represents, you got to go b- beneath the the hashtag. 
Right. And and so we, there's there's this intellectual, and it, of course it's social and, and and it's affecting the politics that's changing at the same time. And I think that's part of what is the shifting going on here. That's a good yeah, that's a good observation. I I think you're right that the layer is maybe broader, deeper, wider. That um, that what's at stake are things we're not even talking about. There's what's at stake as a whole. You said the juggernaut, and maybe those that aren't studied in these things a little bit to know. I think maybe Mark, what you're talking about is this is this whole movement of Western intellectual history, which has had been pretty stable over the past several thousand years. And not that it's right or wrong; it's just pretty been pretty stable. Um, and that through a through a hashtag it's shocking in this culture that you could actually upend something that's been that stable and that enduring and say, because I think you're right. If, if something like black lives matter is as both one, a sentiment, which I, I believe most people actually do believe um, minus a few crazy people that I wouldn't want to talk about, but most everyone believes that black lives in fact do matter, but that the hashtag itself is a um, it dilutes. It, it's meant to dilute some of these epistemological social religious cultural frameworks that have been undergirding the whole Western experiment since, um, you know, yeah. probably the, the rise of the, of the classical Greek civilization. So, and that, that's a whole nother topic, but you're right. I, I think in, in some sense, we've got to grapple, are, are we even giving ourselves time and space to think through those things and realize what we are saying when we do a hashtag, whether it's a left one or a right one? Um, yeah. 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 That's a great point. You know, right. even, and I'll go the other way. Make America Great Again. Sometimes, uh, MAGA, right. It, it, is, it is a powerful statement, and it's, it's loaded with presuppositions. It's, it's uh, I mean, you and I are teaching a humanities class together right now, right? It's loaded with worldview. That's right. Um, as is Black Lives Matter. It, it's loaded with worldview. Uh, and so, and if you can't sort of, you don't have the tools to kind of process what, what's actually being said, uh, but it, 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 it the the other the other piece is is just the polarization you know it's either you have a maga hat or you have a black yeah. lives matter yeah. hat right yeah. and it's and i think for the christian it's like i can't a thoughtful christian it's going to be really hard to just yes sign me up for a red hat or sign me up for a black hat right uh, i think that's what we're we're that's the tension we're feeling Right. And I think that's where we, and I, if we take Piper's thing, and maybe this is, this is where, where we need to land. I don't know exactly where that is, but land in the point where this is going to be difficult. And, you know, you, it, it's, you're right. Nuance becomes the issue here. We just don't have room for it. And I think you and I know as scholars in our own fields that, that most of what we do is nuanced. It's very hard to avoid it or escape it because things are so complicated. It, you say Lincoln, and in my mind, I'm, and you know, you are too, all the difficulties of Lincoln. Lincoln was the best supporter of the Republican. He's a guy that the one man that nearly killed it by calling up troops without congressional approvals and freeing slaves. Without, I mean, it's, it, he was doing all sorts of things without Congress in a way that would be considered absolutely detrimental. And he's the one man that actually saved the Republican. Jefferson also, right? Jefferson is the guy that, that comes out in support of states' rights and, and, and individual rights. And he's the guy that buys up Louisiana territory without even congressional <laughs> approval, right? Right, right. And right. declares a war. Uh, against the against the British shuts down our entire trade as a country. Yeah. Uh, without you know congressional approval. So, you know, um, I, I think it's it's the hard part about this. And you're right about that. Is is that as Christians we want clarity and certainty in this. We want to come out and say I know how to deal with this. And I, I hope you hear from Pipers, and I I would agree with them. 
you're not going to come up with any comfortable answer on this. Um, and now, now let me ask you, Mark, and this is, this is what's rattling around in my hollow brain now when we're talking this way. Do you think it's fair? And I'll, I'll use a quote from one of my very favorite people, Michael Cromarty, who used to work in D.C. Um, um, as a Christian man, deeply respected him, as he said about the election, I think, in 0, was it 08? Um, you're not electing uh, a, a chief pastor here, right? Yeah. You're electing a president. So is, is it fair? Can we, do we have freedom? Are you going to give us freedom, Dr. Draper, to be pragmatic when we yeah. go to the polls in November? It's interesting uh, you say that because uh, Wayne Grudem wrote an article uh, talking about why he was going to vote he, the way he was. And, and, and he was clear he was going to vote for Trump. He's going to vote Republican. But he, he argued, I'm voting for a worldview. Hmm. Uh, I'm not voting for a candidate. Uh, I just feel as if this party's platform closely, more closely aligns with my worldview than the other platform. Hmm. Uh, and that was the pragmatism. Mm -hmm. That was the pragmatism in it. Uh, and so uh, every time people do, I think every election, people make this negotiation. I think what has happened, and, and the other thing is we also need to be aware, I heard someone say that one of the talking head pundits say last night, it's so true, that every you know, political convention is, 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 a, is a spectacle of propaganda. And, and it's hard to discern the propaganda from the truth. And you can get caught up in the propaganda. And, and, and can you kind of bore down and see through that? And if that's the case, yeah, you are gonna have to peel away some of those pieces and, be, and you may have to be pragmatic and for some people, pragmatism might, or they're, they're, they just can't pull the lever for anybody. In their negotiation of the city of man and kingdom of God, they just cannot pull the lever for anybody. Or they will have to vote third party in their conscience. Um, and then there will be other people. And I think this is where we as the church have to be fair to each other, that different people negotiate this allegiance differently. Yeah. But I, I think that both parties in the American context have basically said, well, if you're pro-life, you have to vote for us. And if you're pro-choice, you have to vote for us. Yeah. And so for some people, when they boil it down, they're like, you know, I don't like either party, but this one's more pro-life than this one, so I'll go there. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is too, I think a lot of conservative Christians feel if they don't vote the pro-life party, and I've read this, so I'm not, I, I don't want, I'm not just saying this to be, uh, to be macabre, but well, if I don't vote pro-life party, well, then I will have blood on my hands. Yeah. Um, and so there's a real con you know, a, a conflict of, of heart there uh, to say, yeah, I get it. All this other stuff. I, I don't like it. I don't like the tweets. I don't like this. I don't like that. But I, 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 at the end of the night, when I put my head on my pillow at night, I have to know that this, 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 uh, where I think there's other people who would say, yeah, but when I put my head on the pillow, uh, I have to vote for a party that I, I think anyway is more concerned with kids once they get out of the womb. Yeah. Right? I think that's the, the other, the other thing too, I'm going to, I wrote this down. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to the RNC 
recently because they're actually quoting Dr. King. Hmm. Uh, they had a number of African-American uh, elected officials uh, speak, and but they, they, they quoted Dr. King a number of times, and I couldn't help as a historian think of the irony. Yeah. Because in the 1968 political convention, he's the last person the RNC would have quoted. Yeah. <laughs> so that leads to the question, has Dr. King been defanged? Hmm. Or the issues that we think are just so life and death at the moment, give it 50 years. Yeah. And this could have a completely different framing on it. Well, I think I think there's I think bringing King up is interesting because um, I mean for lots of reasons, but I think one of the things that's intriguing about King is that his I believe anyway, and I think this is conventional history on King, but if, if people disagree with me. But that when King was largely focused on the race issue in the South, that the answer was pretty simple: just just give us the Constitution. It, it's already it's already there. All the freedoms we need are already there. The American right. from the Declaration of Independence is already there. Um, we've got all of that already in place. All we need is more of what already is. And you see him, and I, I bring, I, one of my favorite pictures is the, is the single man march. He marches with James Meredith after Meredith is shot in 66. Um, he survives. And then they continue this march across the South. And then at the end of this uh, march, you've got King handing out American flags to all of his people that marched with him. And he's quoting from the Declaration of Independence like he did in 63 and the, and the Constitution. After 67, however, um, when the Compton riots in LA and other riots break out, he goes to investigate the Northern black problem. And after that, he delivers his very famous uh, speech, one, one against Vietnam, um, but the other speech was to his uh, retreat. Um, and what he said was, I, in one sense, I think I'm wrong. Um, I, think what, I think what we need is not more of the constitution. This whole thing has to change. And he said things like, we need guaranteed income. We need health insurance for everybody we need, you know, and things that you wouldn't hear from King, I don't think in 65 by 67, you're starting to hear. And of course he shot in 68. So it's hard to imagine how he was progressing or whether he would have seen, because he was dead set against Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and the black power movement. But the things he was saying was starting to merge with some of the same complaints, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it, you're, I think you're right. I think it's pretty ironic that the guy who was making that shift by 68 is now brought, the Republican convention. Well, but, and it's not I, those quotes, you know, those quotes weren't the ones that were being uh, right. brought up, you know, it was right. the more benign. Right. Well, it was the pre-67 king. Yeah. I, I mean, it's too simplistic, but that's what I mean by it. And I, I think, I think that this becomes a, a bit of an issue about what, is, what did America promise? I always do in my class, what did America promise? And there's two views on this. And the one is that America's promise was good. It really is good. It just hasn't been fulfilled yet. And the other one that Carmichael and um, guys like Franz Fanon, the Algerian um, and um, other black power movement, Bobby Steele and Newton were saying is that the promise was hacked from the beginning. Yeah. So there's never been a promise. And that's the 1619 project. And that's BLM also to these days is that there never has been a, a promise worth fulfilling. And so I think that the civil rights movement, and this is where I think it's, it's odd, but not too odd, because I think the Republicans are appealing to that very vibrant, real civil rights movement, which still says, I believe America has the best promise going. Unfortunately, in the civil rights movement, it's doing exactly what you've said is happening to the politics everywhere, is that where there used to be something of a common ground, they've now become enemies of one another. Yeah. So you've yeah. got people in the civil rights movement who are willing to say, hey, we, 
we need more jobs and more free market and more constitutionalism. And the other group saying that's exactly what's wrong with this country. Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 in fact, it's, it's, that's the juxtaposition that the political parties have positioned them, you know, created, right? right that right. one party is saying what you just said, that America is, uh, uh, it, it, it has, the, it has the, the skeleton to be something. Right. Be good. Right. Uh, the others are saying no. It's 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 always been uh, broken. Right. And, and now's the time to fix it. You know, now's the time to fix it. And here are the principles we're going to use. Um, and for some people in that movement, they are more Marxist principles. Yeah. That's if you boil it down. They they are yeah. more Marxist principles and. Right. Uh, um, and so, yeah, you do see, it's, it's fascinating as, as someone who grew up during the Cold War, um, you know, because when I was a kid, the Democrats and the Republicans were anti-communist. You know, who was more right. anti-communist than Kennedy, Kennedy oh. right? Oh my goodness, yeah. You're right? right? And, but on the other hand, too, I think, so while there's this epistemological shift happening overall, I also think, too, though, that liberalism, is change has changed oh, in yeah. the last 50 years yeah. uh, since Kennedy, where you know uh, a, a John Kennedy liberal would not be okay with cancel culture. Right. Uh, so it's so even even what we mean by, and this affects us where we teach. You know, does does that now trickle down to what it means to teach the liberal arts? Yeah. Uh, um, and so. Yeah, so I, I don't think we've solved any problems. Dr. <laughs> I, I don't think so at all. Um, I, I think um, you, I think if it comes across that you know we're wrestling with this as ev with everybody yeah. else, yeah. but we're trying to provide some some historical background and some intellectual framework, particularly the historical background that gets missed in our dialogue. Yeah, um, it, it, you just can't do it in a tweet. Uh, you can't do it in a social media post. Uh, you, you, it's even hard to do today in a political speech. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's because of the populism, because of the way we do politics. And so, um, but well, I mean, we should end it with um, the challenge is where's our allegiance? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe the reason there are some Christians wrestling with this is and maybe Piper's right, uh, is that they do know where their allegiance is and it doesn't feel right here. The city yeah. of man is asking them for things that they just don't want to deliver. And, and I'll, I'll drop this in and maybe we can, we can revisit this. That is it possible that we as Christians in the West and in America specifically we'll have to begin to view ourselves as exiles. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that, that because the Constantinian synthesis is in its death now, where we could feel a bit comfortable and the culture uh, would support us, may we have to start reading Jeremiah and, mm -hmm. and reading the Old Testament and developing a game plan that's not say Anabaptist, because that, that might have some of its own kind of cultural baggage it's developed, but may we need to develop a, a, uh, 
sort of a Bonhoeffer sort of exile theology, yeah. uh, which would be a very new thing for American Christians to wrestle with. Yeah, um, that's yeah. an idea I've been I've been chewing on. Well, I think that's I think that's where probably a lot of Christians are, whether they admit it publicly or not, where they're where they're ending up. They're, they're trickling downhill here, and I, I think I want to I want to say too, in light of that, which I think is a good thought, is that um, we have to be careful. What we get the idea of Kantian. I don't want to go back into that now, but this Kantian categorical imperative that what's right is what's right for everybody. So you can determine it's right, and I I think if we're really loyal to Christ, we know that. The kingdom doesn't fall or rise on my decision, and I'm I'm not trying to figure out what's true for the whole kingdom. I'm trying to, in my context, in my framework, in my conscience, with the Holy Spirit in my life, and then I have Christian to disagree with, but I know God is working through all of that, and so I I don't if if my loyalty ends up falsely placed in what happens here, then I have every right to stone them for being wrong. But if if I'm trusting the King of the Universe here, then I'm going to do in my conscience and according to prayer and fasting what I believe is correct and show grace and mercy to those around me. And um, so maybe, maybe tempered with that, but I, I, I like your perspective. And I think that I, I said this once, and maybe this might be my last statement on, I said once in a, in a Sunday school class to a church, Presbyterian church, PCA, and said, at some point, I fear you're going to have to ask yourself, are you an American or are you a Christian? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I think you're right. We haven't thought that. that maybe not now, maybe not for 20 years, 30 years, a hundred years. But I think if, if you have to look at any political identity, and say, I refuse to ask that question, then, then maybe it has captured our loyalties rather than just capture our politics or our practice or something like that. It's actually captured our loyalties at some point. And maybe that's time for some self-reflection. And, and I think one of the things I'm seeing in our rhetoric today that saddens me as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is that we are uh, creating a litmus test within the kingdom of heaven based on decisions you're making in the city of man. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, to the point where we're saying, if you make this decision in the city of man, um, then you obviously are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating how, and I'm not sure that's a new phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. We yeah. have inquisitions that may say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Uh, but that. Yeah. This, this, this divide we're seeing is, is, that's happening in the city of man is actually dividing the citizens of the kingdom of God. Yeah. And, and, and that's what makes me think in this fallen world, that's where we're always living in this tension and negotiation yeah. Yeah. Uh, of the two. So. I agree. Well, this has awesome. been good. All right. I hope, uh, hope this is helpful for people. We enjoyed processing it together. Uh, and some of this is is uh, is helping us think through ideas as well. So. Yeah, we'll be back. We've got some more topics in regard uh, to the to the election itself to to bring up beforehand, just to help sort of with the conversation. So there'll there'll be more to come. Great. Thanks, Mark.